Hey everybody, this is Chris Attic. Today on the VA Form 21 podcast, we are going to talk about a question that I am sure has been on your mind for weeks, months, possibly even years. We are going to answer the question, what the muck me is going on with GERD? The VA Form 21 podcast, before we get into all that, is brought to you by the law firm of AttiCSteel.com. AttiCSteel.com provides caring, effective, and efficient representation of veterans denied by the Board of Veterans' Appeals at the Court of Appeals for Veterans' Claims in the United States Circuit Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. Listen, hop on to iTunes or whatever tool or app you use to listen to podcasts. Give us a rating. And at any time, feel free to shoot me an email at vetlaw at addictsteel.com. Let me know what topics you want to hear on this podcast. For the time being, we're going to focus heavily on oral arguments at the Court of, of Appeals for Veterans Claims and select arguments before the United States Court of Appeals for the Federal Circuit. So let's jump right into today's case. We are going to be talking about the case of Atencio v. Wilkie. Cause number 16-1561. Oral arguments were held on April 26, 2018 before the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. And the issue in this case deals with Gulf War Syndrome presumptions of service connection and a medical condition known as GERD. So normally we just jump right into the law and give you an overview of the law. Well, I'm going to start a little bit earlier in the process this time, and we're going to talk a little bit about medicine. So we're going to talk about the term GERD. And what is GERD? It's an acronym, G-E-R-D, Gulf Echo Romeo Delta, for those of you that are former military folks. And GERD is gastroesophageal reflux disorder. GERD can often but not always result from a dysfunctional valve that sits right at the top of your stomach and at the bottom of your esophagus. If that valve is not functioning properly for any number of reasons, stomach acid that's usually blocked by the valve is going to wash up into the esophagus and can cause pretty dangerous tissue damage. So a lot of folks think of gastro, I'm sorry, GERD as a uh, heartburn or indigestion type condition and obviously that is a sensation that a person suffering from GERD has, but it is a really dangerous and traumatic condition. Uh, once you start wearing down that tissue in the esophagus, then a lot of really bad things can start happening inside the human body. GERD is thought to be, in most cases, um, a, a gastrointestinal disorder that is structural in nature. It is a structural gastrointestinal disorder in most cases because of the fact that it affects how the actual gastrointestinal system functions with the structure of it, with the connection of various components of it, with the biochemistry of it. Those things are considered structural GI disorders. A functional GI disorder is a little bit different. It's going to be one that affects how the GI system and gastrointestinal, gastrointestinal system functions. So, counsel uh, for the veteran in this case uh, tried to create a, a new acronym. Uh, you will hear it in the oral arguments. I'm taking a pause here to talk about acronyms. Uh, you're going to hear the phrase uh, dropped uh, two or three times in the argument, fidget. And when you hear that, uh, they're talking about FIGD, which is a functional gastrointestinal disorder, or FGID. Thankfully, thankfully, the court put the kibosh on that acronym because nobody wants to have to sit there and talk about fidgets, right? So listen, I love the attorneys up at Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick. Know many of them. They're great attorneys. They do great work. But listen, guys, if you're listening, I got to tell you, 
you're forbidden from creating acronyms. Just Fidget did it for me, man. You are off the list. If we need acronyms, we're going to go to the Department of Acronyms, have them create one. But for now, you guys are out. I'm sorry, guys. I love you, but I got to do it. Anyway, the court did not allow the parties to argue that Fidget acronym, but they allowed a ton of others, and we will talk about them throughout the course of this podcast episode. So let's jump into the law. What we've got here is a regulation known as... uh, Largely, it's the regulations governing presumption of Gulf War Syndrome. And if you remember, Gulf War Syndrome was this kind of basket of symptoms that nobody really could put a label on. You had stomach problems. You had pain problems. You had nerve problems. There were sometimes some psychiatric components of it, breathing problems. It was all kind of wrapped up together. Nobody could ever figure out. And and when I say nobody in the medical community could ever figure out what was going on. And so a lot of vets are having problems proving service connection for these conditions. And Congress said, you know what, we want to make it easier. We're going to create this presumption for Gulf War syndrome. Well, they didn't know how to define what the medical community could not define. So they created a statute that talked about these chronic, multi-symptom, undiagnosed illnesses. And when they issued that statute, the VA, as it almost always does, Uh, issues some sort of a regulation interpreting that statute so that it can be applied. Remember, a statute is Congress giving authority to the executive branch, and a regulation is the executive branch telling itself how to take action on that statute. And so the VA, to take action on that Gulf War syndrome presumption, wrote the regulation 38 CFR 3.317, among others. And I'm going to tell you that this regulation, I personally believe that this is one of the VA's most significant nods, I guess, to complexity ever written. Um, I strongly encourage you to read it. And if you have a client affected by this regulation, please, please, please take the time to sit down and map out the sequence of this regulation, how it works, and talk to somebody that has experience applying it in an agency or at a court case to make sure that you're really understanding it. Because there's so many moving pieces in this regulation. It really probably just needs to be just erased and started over. But that's my personal opinion. And this podcast is not too much about Chris Addick's personal opinions. But that said, the regulation 38 CFR 3.317, it purports to derive from the U.S. Code 1117 and 1118, uh, which are much more direct and simple in their instruction. Congress passed these statutes to give Gulf War veterans an easy path to prove service connection when they exhibited the symptoms of a condition known as Gulf War Syndrome. That easy path has turned into a labyrinth of red tape. And if there was ever, ever, ever a regulation that's Exhibit A in the arguments against our deference uh, to agency interpretations of their own regulations, this is the one that should probably prove the point. The argument in this case is at its core, I think, and again, we're kind of stepping into Addict's personal view of this, and, and, and we'll talk about that in a minute. Uh, but I think this is truly a statutory interpretation case. Neither party briefed that issue, and I don't think that's necessarily a problem. I might have briefed this one differently. That doesn't mean anything. The parties are entitled to choose their own way to frame the issue in the way that they think is best for their client. I can't second-guess how the parties did it here. I can't say that if I was in their shoes, I would have done it differently. Uh, but I do see this as a statutory interpretation argument. And I think when you hear the oral arguments in this case, you're going to hear the court and the parties finding it a little difficult to navigate how to interpret 3.317 because really the real issue comes before that. It's whether the regulation lawfully flows from the statute. That said, here's the crux of the issue. The parties asked the court to decide, and that's really what's critical, is what did the parties ask the court to decide 
uh, under 38 CFR 3.317A2, little one, the VA specifically excluded structural gastrointestinal diseases from the definition of a qualifying disability because GERD, as I noted earlier, is largely and in many cases thought to be structural in nature. However, in 38 CFR 3.317A2, little two, right after that, the regulation specifically includes in the definition of a MUCMI, a diagnosed illness without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology. Okay, so what is a MUCMI? We're going to talk about that in just a minute. So the question really kind of boils down to is notwithstanding the Secretary's exclusion of GERD as a disability that qualifies for the Gulf War syndrome presumption, is it still able to afford that presumption to a veteran with GERD if there's no conclusive pathophysiology or etiology? In other words, if you can't get it under A1, can I'm sorry, A2 little 1, can you get that service connected, that presumption under A2 little 2? Now, I'm going to step in and I'm going to give you my personal take on this, and I'm only doing that to give texture to the arguments that you're going to hear in a moment. Uh, sometimes it's better to hear a, an armchair quarterback, which is all that I am in this case, is I'm just a Monday morning quarterback sitting back looking at this oral argument and giving you my personal take. My personal take is that the whole question of whether or not GERD uh, can be service-connected presumptively under A2 little 1 or A2 little 2, I think the whole question is a red herring because I think the secretary can only regulate that which Congress specifically allows. And because Congress did not specifically exclude GERD from consideration for the Gulf War Syndrome presumption, neither can the VA. However, assuming for the sake of argument that the regulation is lawful, then appellants' arguments really do make a lot of sense. Now, whether the court goes with them or not, I don't know. Only the court knows. Um, but I think that if you have a situation, think about this. If you've got GERD and it's caused by a failure of that valve between the esophagus and the stomach, as I mentioned, it often is, then it really is indeed a structural condition, and it's not likely going to be the manifestation of the symptoms of Gulf War Syndrome. If, if though, consider the alternative, the veteran's GERD has no known etiology, or etiology, depending on whether you're your Yankee or a Southerner, uh, the etiology or etiology of a condition is the cause, and the pathophysiology is the disease mechanism. So if the veteran's GERD has no known etiology or no known pathophysiology, no known cause or no real understanding of the disease mechanism, then there's a really good possibility that diagnosed or not, it's not a structural GI disease and it in fact is a functional one. Again, this is my opinion. The parties don't necessarily make these arguments, which is fine. As I Monday morning quarterback this argument, in this case, I have the luxury of thought and time and reflection that judges and advocates in the heat of battle or in the heat of oral arguments don't necessarily have. That said, let's talk about what's really going on in the case and stop with Adig's opinion. I, again, I only give you that to give you texture to what follows. So 38 CFR 3.317. It entitles a qualifying veteran with a qualifying condition to a presumption of service connection. Now, let's turn into some definitions. A Persian Gulf veteran is one who served on active military, naval, or air service in the Southwest Asia Theater of Operations during the Persian Gulf War. What is the Southwest Asia Theater of Operations? I guess if I was with uh, Chisholm Kilpatrick, I would probably call this the Sato. Just joking, guys. Just joking. Again, you guys are completely forbidden from making any kind of acronyms. 
ever again. And I'm writing that down. I've got a pencil and paper. I'm noting it down in the book of important rules. Anyway, just a little bit of tongue-in-cheek humor there. Love you guys up there. Anyway, the Southwest Asia Theater of Operations refers to Iraq, Kuwait, Saudi Arabia, the neutral zone between Iraq and Saudi, Bahrain, Qatar, the United Arab Emirates, Oman, the Gulf of Aden, the Gulf of Oman, the Persian Gulf, the Arabian Sea, the Red Sea, and the airspace above those locations. Got it? Did you get all that? To be entitled to the presumption, though, the veteran's qualifying condition must have first manifest itself either during the service in the Southwest Asia Theater or it must have manifest to a degree of 10% or more what the VA calls a compensable level, not later than December 31st of 2021. So that open presumptive period has not yet closed. To have a qualifying condition, you got to first have a chronic disability that results from one of the following, an undiagnosed illness or a muckme. All right, so let's jump into what a muckme is. And again, this is kind of Exhibit B in the ban on acronyms. Listen, we should just call it Gulf War Syndrome and understand that Gulf War Syndrome is a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness and not call it a muckme. That's my opinion. But anyway, a muckme is what the court's going to call it, and it's defined by a cluster of signs or symptoms such as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, functional GI disorders, and according to this regulation, excludes structural GI diseases. So listen, a muckme, a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness, according to 3.317, is a diagnosed illness without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology that is characterized by overlapping symptoms and signs and has features such as fatigue, pain, disability, out of proportion to those physical findings, and inconsistent demonstration of laboratory abnormalities. Listen, this is the best language these folks could put together to define what nobody has been able to define so far, which is Gulf War Syndrome. So there's going to be confusion over what these regs mean. And always the question is going to be, does the statute expressly allow this? And if the statute does, does the regulation reasonably uh, apply that? If it does not, does the regulation reasonably fill the gap? And that's going to turn on the agency's interpretation and their expression of that interpretation in the matter of court proceedings. So it's going to get really confusing, folks, as we go forward with 3.317, Muckmees, GERD, and all sorts of different conditions. So as noted above, 3.317 expressly excludes GERD from consideration as a qualifying disability. Let's go to the facts in the BVA decision. Now, this case has been going on for a long time time. The veteran first sought service connection for GERD in 2006. The case has been to the board at least three times from what I can discern from the party's arguments. And it's been remanded by the BVA, I think twice, and certainly remanded by the Veterans Court once. Now, the BVA found that the veteran was diagnosed with GERD way back in 1998. It then denied Ms. Atencio's claim for service connection, finding that her GERD was not a functional GI disease and that as such service connection under 3.317 could not be established. Basically, the BVA found that while regardless of whether GERD is a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness, regardless of whether GERD is a muck meat, regardless of whether GERD is Gulf War syndrome because it's a diagnosed condition, and regardless of whether it does not have a conclusive pathophysiology or etiology, a known cause or an understanding of the disease mechanism, the regulation specifically excludes this condition because it's a structural GI disease. Got it? Clear as mud? 
let's move into the veteran's argument. The veteran presents an argument that he calls an issue of first impression, whether GERD is categorically excluded by 38 CFR 3.317 from ever being considered as a muckme, from ever being considered as a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness, from ever being considered as Gulf War syndrome. The veteran then argues that under 3.317A to little one, the VA specifically excludes structural gastrointestinal diseases from the definition of a qualified disability. The veteran then points out that A2 little 2, in that particular regulation, the secretary specifically includes in the definition of a MUCMI, includes in the definition of Gulf War Syndrome, a diagnosed illness without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology. And the question that the veteran then asked the court to address is this, is notwithstanding the secretary's exclusion of GERD as a disability that does not qualify for the Gulf War Syndrome presumption, is it still able to afford that presumption to a veteran with GERD if there is no conclusive pathophysiology or Theology. The Secretary's argument is pretty basic, but respectfully, it, it, it lacks a little bit of detail. And, and I only mention that, well, I'll tell you in a minute why I mention that, but uh, the Secretary argues that the veteran is misreading the regulation and that the veteran provides no legal support for the distinction that she is trying to make. The Secretary does not, in my read of their argument, appear to really engage the, the appellant's legal theory, which makes it challenging to, to explain their position beyond just stating it. So the secretary notes that he believes that the regulation 3.317 is not ambiguous. But then in his brief, he goes on to cite to the regulatory notice and comment as support for the secretary's intent for excluding GERD as a structural GI disease. This is a curious distinction to make because normally the court's not going to care why or the intent behind something in the regulatory process if a regulation is clear. If it's ambiguous, they're going to want a little bit more information to understand and clarify that ambiguity. Uh, and one of the things that they might want to consider uh, is some of the stuff that went on in the regulatory notice and comment period that went into building this regulation. But if the secretary is arguing that it's not ambiguous, then they shouldn't really have any need to kind of bolster uh, their case with what went on beneath. It's either clear or it's not. That said, as a general rule, I, I don't mention these things to embarrass a party. Everybody's free to raise the issues that they want. I'm only doing it so that as you listen to these things, you start thinking more broadly about your cases and the arguments you're making to start thinking if there's a way or a different way to approach this issue that might lead to a more clear conclusion from the court. Or really, at its core, as you're listening to these oral arguments, having this knowledge and having this experience from a practitioner outside of the arguments is really helpful, I think, to understanding what's going on. Otherwise, you're just going to hear a recitation of briefs, uh, a recitation of positions, and then uh, the court's discussion, and you're not going to have the texture or the context to understand it. We are not all subject matter experts. All right. But as a general rule, if I misstate a party's position in one of these posts or one of these podcasts, please, please, please reach out to me at vetlaw at addictsteel.com so that we can get it fixed. I work pretty diligently to state the argument as clearly as I can, uh, at the same time staying objective to the different parties' arguments. But obviously, folks, or, or maybe not obviously, there's some of you out here that would probably disagree, but, but I'm human. So I'm going to fail in this endeavor from time to time. So reach out to me if I fail to accurately state your party's position in a case summary or an oral argument preview in a podcast.
There is no supplemental briefing order so that we can't really frame the issue in the court's words. Uh, so I'm just going to borrow from the appellant's framing of the core issue as it seems to be largely adopted and accepted by all parties and the court. And that question is this. Is GERD categorically excluded by 38 CFR 3.317 from ever being considered a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness or a MUCMI or more simply Gulf War syndrome? You are going to hear several voices on this recording. Um, I'm going to list those voices for you. I just want you to get ready. The quality of the audio from the court recording is necessarily going to be different. I'm recording this in a nice, comfortable office, um, and they're recording it in a big uh, courtroom space where there's a lot of echoing and a lot of uh, folks that are standing distant from mics. So that audio quality is going to be a little bit different. So just get ready. You might have to adjust your volume up or down or play around with some of your audio settings to hear the court's recording a little bit better. Uh, that said, while you're getting ready to do that, let me introduce you to the voices you're going to hear from. We have uh, another esteemed panel from the Court of Appeals for Veterans Claims. This is the second time this week this panel has been together, so I imagine uh, that they are quite exhausted from this week's oral arguments. But you've got uh, Chief Judge Robert N. Davis. You've got the, the female judge that you are going to hear from is Judge Amanda L. Meredith. I only mentioned female just because you can identify the voice that way. Um, and then you've got Judge Michael P. Allen coming in. So um, that said, the appellant's counsel on the briefs from Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick, uh, the first brief was Alexandra Leo. She is not going to be, uh, I believe it's uh, a she, Ms. Leo, Mr. Leo. I'm sorry if I got it wrong. Please email me and correct me. Um, the attorney at argument you will hear from is Christian McTarnigan, and he is attorney on the later briefs and at argument from Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick. And then from the Office of General Counsel, you have Attorney Catherine D. Vell, and she was the attorney on the briefs and at argument. This particular board decision um, comes from uh, Hearing Officer Michelle Kane, and if you will just bear with me for one second, I should be able to find out where the board decision was issued out of. So we're going to click over here to the court's docket. And we are going to see that this board decision is a board decision out of the regional office in Denver, Colorado, March 28, 2016. And without any further ado, I am going to turn you over to the uh, court's recording of the oral arguments. Just get ready to adjust your volume up or down depending on the device you are listening to. And I'll give you a few seconds to get ready and do that. Take care, enjoy the arguments, and let me know at vetlaw at addictsteel.com if you have any questions about what you hear here today.
Good morning. I'm Chief Judge Davis. To my right is Judge Allen, and to my left is Judge Meredith. We're here today in the matter of Atencio against Wilkie, docket number 16-1561, raising a question of whether gastrointestinal reflux disease, otherwise known as GERD, is a medically unexplained chronic multi-system illness, or otherwise known as MUCMI or MUCMI, but M-U-C-M-I. Would counsel for both parties please note your appearance for the record. Good morning, Your Honors. Christian McTarnagan for the appellate, Ms. Ebony Atencio, from the law firm of Chisholm, Chisholm, and Kilpatrick, and with me at counsel's table, Mr. Bradley Hennings, also with the firm. Ms. Hennings, good to see you. Thank you. Good morning, Your Honors. Catherine Bell for the secretary, and with me at the counsel desk is Eric Cassidy. Good. Thank you. Welcome here. Thank you. Are both parties ready to proceed? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. Each party will have 30 minutes to present your respective arguments. Counsel for the appellant, do you wish to reserve any portion of your time for rebuttal? Yes, Your Honor. Ten minutes, please. Okay. Thank you. Very good. You may proceed. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. The Board misinterpreted the law when it found that GERD could never be entitled to the presumption of service connection under 38 CFR Section 3.317 as a medically unexplained chronic multisymptom illness, or MUCMI. That's on page 6 of the record. That is not the rule. GERD is not excluded by the regulation from being considered a MUCMI on a case-by-case basis under subsection 2I. There are two separate and distinct ways a gastrointestinal disability can be afforded the presumption as a MUCMI under the plain language of the regulation. The first way, the automatic way, is under 2I, subsection 2I. Is that the functional? Yes, Your Honor. Under that... So you're going to talk about the difference between the structural and functional coverage for GERD. I'm sorry, Your Honor? You're about to talk about the difference between the functional and structural coverage for GERD? Yes, Your Honor. So the first way, the automatic way, is if you have a functional gastrointestinal disability, without any further development with qualifying service, you're entitled to the presumption and service connection for that disability. The second way, the case-by-case way, is found under subsection 2I. There, if the structural gastrointestinal disability, such as GERD, which is involved in this case, if it's determined medically on an individualized basis to be without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology with the cluster of signs and symptoms, it, too, can be considered a MUCMI under that subsection of the regulation. So I have two questions. So the first one is, for purposes of the question we're answering today, is 3.317, in your view, ambiguous? No, Your Honor, it is not. It is plain. Okay. So what if one were to say this is the way 3.317 reads, okay, which is 2iB, right, says you can get this presumption, presumptive service connection, 
for something that is a multi-illness symptom or, or disease, okay? And then it says such as and lists one, two, three as examples. Are you with me so far? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. <clears throat> then little two I defines what that me is for purposes of filling out the list in that earlier section. Do you, do you see what I'm saying? I do see what you're saying, Your Honor. So if it's that, okay, if that's the way the, stat the regulatory scheme is set, it would seem really bizarre if you had something that said functional gastrointestinal disorders excluding structural, but then you go to two little i, which fills in the rest of that list, and now you put a structural gastrointestinal disease back on the list, right? So that's where, I'm, I'm telling you, that's where I am in reading the statute. And so for just one judge up here, you've got to convince me that what I just said is wrong. <laughs> All right, Your Honor. Well, let me try. Um, so the reason why we think that those two subsections must be read separately is because they come from different parts of the statutory scheme. And so when you look to 1117 subsection A2C, that gave the Secretary the power to add disabilities as MUCMEs by name when, pursuant to 1118, there is an association, a scientific association of a connection between service in the Persian Gulf and the disability. And that's why the Secretary added fidgets under subsection 2IB because the NAS study, which is noted in, in the Federal Register, um, connected fidgets, functional gastrointestinal disabilities, to Persian Gulf service. And so the Secretary added it by name under that part of the, of the statutory scheme. The Secretary could not have added structural gastrointestinal disabilities by name because of the requirement of 1118. So what about the fact that it wasn't just that the secretary added fidgets or whatever, functional, functional gastrointestinal okay. <laughs> I, I, I can handle only one acronym at a time. <laughs> That's fair. Um, so it's not just that they added that, but they specifically, or he, the secretary, specifically included the parenthetical that excluded the structural, right? I mean, I think the argument could have been stronger had it just included in the list of one little i functional and said nothing about structural. But what do, what do we do with the fact that it, that that language excluding? Well, I think I think the distinction I think the distinction between why or the reason why two i and two double i should be read separately <clears throat> is because two little i was added under his under the secretary's power of 1117b um, to add um, add muckmies by name with scientific evidence and so the exclusion using your word judge allen um, of structural under that part of the regulation was only because the nsa study didn't support an association a definitive association however there's a whole other part of the statutory scheme under 1117c which gives the secretary the power to add 
or to a forward presumptive service connection, excuse me, to disabilities on a case-by-case basis. And so the Secretary was only given the power to afford conditions presumptive service connection. The Secretary wasn't given the power under the regulation to explicitly exclude from the whole regulatory scheme disabilities that on a case-by-case individualized basis with medical evidence supporting it were found to be MUCMEs. So 1117B tracks with 2I, adding them by name, adding the disabilities by name. 1117C was the power that Congress gave the Secretary to be able to on a case-by-case basis. And we know that the Secretary understood this distinction because in 2010, the Secretary removed a subsection of the regulation. It's not there anymore. Because it specifically said the power to designate what a MUCME was was solely reserved to the Secretary. But what was happening is that adjudicators were looking at the statute and only allowing the presumption to apply for fibromyalgia, chronic fatigue syndrome, and at that time IBS, which is now functional gastrointestinal disabilities. And they removed it because they wanted to remind adjudicators that whether a disability is a MUCME, other than those three specifically enumerated under subsection 2I, they could make the decision just like they do in any other case as to whether that disability with medical evidence supporting it, of course, could be considered a MUCME. And that's found in the October 7, 2007 Federal Register, Your Honors. And so because the regulation tracks the separate powers that the Secretary was given, our position is that they must be read separately. There are two ways that a veteran's disability, a gastrointestinal disability, can be found to be a MUCME under the plain language of the regulation, Your Honors. Mr. McTonaghan, would you concede that if that's the case, this is certainly not a good example of good draftsmanship? I think it could be more clear, Your Honor. That's an understatement. I think that because there have been two separate subsections, there's a 2I and a 2II, I think that that was a way that the Secretary was trying to explain in the regulation that there are two separate ways. And I think that's supported by the Federal Register and the statute. But wouldn't it have made more sense, your argument, if the, and this is going to be parsing legislative drafting, so I should defer to Judge Meredith, but if, in fact, instead of being 2II, what is 2II now were capital C. In other words, 2IIC. And the reason being, that would make more sense for your argument when it says you get this presumptive connection for A, an undiagnosed illness, B, what's there now that has this list, and then C, what's now 2. But the way it's written now, it says under sub-I, you get it in these two situations, capital A, capital B. You then go to another section and it says, and by the way, we use this term up there. This is what the term means. So that would mean to me, I think, all that 2II is doing is defining essentially what is set forth in B. Do you see what I mean? I do see what you mean, Your Honor. But in a case, let's use fibromyalgia, for example. In a case where a veteran has qualifying service in the Persian Gulf, 
and they have fibromyalgia. And I use this example in my reply brief. The veteran does not have to demonstrate that it's of unknown etiology or pathophysiology. The veteran just needs to demonstrate qualifying service and fibromyalgia, a diagnosis of fibromyalgia. So if 2I was only used to explain what the phrase MUCMI means, which is in subsection 2IB, then that veteran would also have to show an inconclusive pathophysiology and etiology with the cluster of signs and symptoms. However, that's not how the regulation is applied. That's not how the regulation works. It could be. A different way to say that would be normally that was, so if you ever wanted to add a number 4 to the list, okay, because we've got chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and then the functional gastrointestinal. If you want to add a number 4 to that list, you have to satisfy the definitions in sub 2i. For the three that are listed, the secretary has made a conclusive determination, at least for now, that they qualify. And so you don't have to go through the definitional hurdle. I mean, why wouldn't that be an equally plausible way to look at that? Because I think that ignores the interplay between 1117 and 1118. Because the secretary needs to have scientific evidence, such as an NAS study that the secretary was able to get for the functional gastrointestinal disabilities. In order to add it by name, the secretary needs to have that scientific evidence. And so adding a disability by name to the statute comes from 1117B, which must be supported by scientific evidence, which is found in 1117A. So I don't think that for the secretary to add it by name, that disability needs to be medically unexplained. For the secretary to add it by name, the disability needs to have a definitive association proven by scientific evidence to be added to the regulation. And that's why I think it's different, Your Honor. Can I jump in there? The language that we're talking about, this excluding structural gastrointestinal diseases, it comes under 2i, which starts out, for purposes of this section, for the entire section, how do you give meaning to those words under the interpretation that you're putting forth? If the excluding language applies to the entire section, but you're essentially saying it doesn't apply in 2i. I see the part of the regulation that you're referring to, the first clause in 2i. I would say that it's our position that a chronic qualifying disability, so the phrase that comes after for this section, is defined both by an undiagnosed illness, the medically unexplained that are related to the regulation by scientific evidence, the chronic fatigue syndrome, the fibromyalgia, and the functional gastrointestinal, as well as these other medically unexplained disabilities on a case-by-case basis. So if these three, under B, 1, 2, and 3, those are meant to be examples of conditions that, in your words, I think was automatically qualified, then they also have listed there an excluding. Does it not suggest that that is never going to be an example? 
I don't think it does, Your Honor, because then that would undermine the entire case-by-case analysis that's required of any other disability other than those three specifically enumerated. And so the parentheses in subsection A2IB3, B3 for short, those parentheses were only because the NSA study or a study at this point in time does not show that definitive association. But everything else is just required to be the more or less likely than not, given the benefit of the doubt rule. And so the automatic doesn't require any sort of extra showing. But that doesn't mean the case-by-case analysis is completely written out of the regulation for the gastrointestinal, the structural gastrointestinal disabilities. Mr. McTarnan, just as an aside, do you read the language in 2i, beginning with, for purposes of this section, the term medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness means a diagnosed illness without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology. Do you read that phrase, pathophysiology or etiology, as disjunctive or conjunctive? So it would be, we don't read it as, we read it as an or, Your Honor, and not as an and, consistent with the position that we took in Mr. Stewart's case. So you read it disjunctively, not conjunctively? Either or, yes, Your Honor. Yes. Can I back up a minute? In 2015, the parties here agreed to remand this case for consideration of 3.317. Does that play into this at all in deciding what these words mean? Is it subject to more than one interpretation that it was remanded at one point to consider whether GERD would qualify? I'm not sure, I'm not sure that it does automatically mean that the regulation could be interpreted in multiple ways, Your Honor. I think, from my understanding, excuse me, of what happened, the board didn't consider the presumption at all, and the veteran did have qualifying service, qualifying service in the Persian Gulf. So that's why it was added to the joint motion. I'm not sure if it means definitively that there are two separate and contrary or, you know, disparate ways to interpret the regulation. Would there have been a need to remand it if, as I believe the Secretary is arguing, as a matter of law, GERD does not qualify under 3.317? And I think because it would otherwise be harmless error, Your Honor. I think that's, I think, I think that supports, I think it supports an argument that the board, on a case-by-case basis, needs to determine whether structural gastrointestinal disabilities like GERD need to be considered under the presumption. I would agree with you. So under B3, the parenthetical, it says excluding structural gastrointestinal diseases. Number one, what's the regulatory history of that exclusion? And number two, you're telling me it means except for in certain cases. So to answer your first question, Your Honor, the FIDGIDS functional, I'm sorry, functional gastrointestinal disabilities were added by name to the, was proposed in November of 2010 
And then the final rule issued in July of 2011. And so because the Secretary had scientific evidence by way of an NAS study that functional gastrointestinal disabilities were definitively associated with service in the Persian Gulf, they are entitled to the presumption. And so, and to answer your second question, Your Honor, which I believe was asking about the parentheses in the exclusion, correct? That was added because at that point in time, the Secretary only had the scientific evidence pursuant to his statutory authority under 1117B and 1118 to add functional gastrointestinal disabilities by name. They didn't have that evidence of the concrete definitive association between structural gastrointestinal disabilities and the Persian Gulf. But that doesn't mean, as Your Honor alluded to, that on the case-by-case basis, with medical evidence on the individualized circumstance of the case, that a veteran's structural gastrointestinal disability could not be a MUCMI. A little tongue-tied there, Your Honor. My apologies. If it met either the pathophysiology requirement or the etiology requirement, it possibly could be a MUCMI. Yes, Your Honor. And I see that my time is winding down. If there are no further questions, may I conclude? Please. We ask that this Court remand to the Board for a determination whether Ms. Atencio's GERD is a MUCMI and to obtain medical evidence to support that determination. Thank you very much, Your Honors. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. The Court should affirm the Board's March 2016 decision because it properly determined that GERD is not a medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illness or MUCMI because it is a structural gastrointestinal GI disorder, which, unlike functional GI disorders, is not a MUCMI because it is a structural or organic disease that's characterized by abnormalities seen on X-ray, endoscopy, lab results, or other objective signs of injury or disease. So is your position, before we get into the statutory numbers and do all of that again, is your position that GERD is, because it is a structural gastrointestinal disease, it is automatically off the table? Yes, Your Honor. So I had not considered something fully until Judge Meredith asked this question a moment ago. But what then do we do with the fact that there is an order in the case, right? There was a JMR in which the Secretary took the position that remand was required. And this is from page 38 of the record. It says, because the Board did not discuss whether presumptive entitlement to service connection for GERD may have been warranted pursuant to 38 U.S.C. section 1117, frustrating judicial review. And then it went on and says the parties agree that the Board should consider whether appellant is a Persian Gulf veteran as contemplated by 1117, and if so, whether presumptive service entitlement to service connection 
based on that statute, and the regulatory provision for 3.317 is warranted. You've made an argument in this case that somehow the appellant is sort of precluded from doing things because of the JMR. It seems to me your position to the court today is entirely at odds with the position the Secretary took in the joint motion to remand. No, Your Honor, because the joint motion for remand was for the board to consider all issues that can be, the appellant's guard can be considered under. The board did not do so in the first instance. No, but what I just read you said that this provision was to remand so the board can consider whether GERD is entitled to presumptive entitlement to service connection under 3.317, right? Yes, Your Honor. But you just told me that GERD is completely off the table, right? Yes, Your Honor. I think those are inconsistent. So my fundamental question is why shouldn't we say regardless of what the statute actually means, in this particular case the Secretary is bound by his earlier position in the litigation? Your Honor, in that joint motion for remand, the board erred by not considering 3.317 in the first instance. So it would be very difficult for the court to consider that, whether the board properly determined that issue, and that's why the parties decided to remand for the board to consider that issue because it had not considered that issue in the first instance. Why is it error if it's, as a matter of law, impossible to get benefits in your view for GERD under this provision? Because the court would not have had an opportunity to consider whether the board properly determined that issue because the board did not consider it at all. So the parties remanded for the board to consider the issue for the first instance, and in this case the board properly did so by finding that GERD is excluded from consideration under 3.317. So, Ms. Snell, your position is that there is no room for any case-by-case determinations on structural GERD. Is that correct? Yes, Your Honor. And why exactly is that? Your Honor, because all subsection 2 does is to explain what constitutes a MOCME for purposes of fulfilling the requirement of subsection 1. And the Secretary's interpretation is supported by the plain meaning of the regulation and also by the legislative history. For example, in the beginning of subsection 2, it states for purposes of this section, MOCME is, and then it goes on to explain what a MOCME is. In addition, according to the October 2010 Federal Register, 3.317 was amended to clarify that the two included diseases were only examples and that adjudicators, when adjudicating under subsection 1, should consider the term MOCME as it is defined under subsection 2. Therefore, Your Honor, that Federal Register makes it clear that diseases are considered under subsection 1 using the definition of MOCME as it is defined under subsection 2. In addition, it makes it clear that the only diseases that are considered under subsection 1 are those that have not been included or excluded. 
for example, chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and at that time, irritable bowel syndrome, which was later amended to expand to all uh, functional GI disorders and exclude all structural GI disorders, including GERD and inflammatory bowel diseases, such as ulcerative colitis and Crohn disease. Could I, could I just ask one question to follow up before Judge Davis follows up? Yes. Um, you, you've spent a lot of time talking about the Federal Register. Uh, I want to get your position on what I asked Appellant's Counsel as well. Um, do you believe that for purposes of the questions we are addressing today, that 3.317 is ambiguous? No, Your Honor. Based on the plain meaning of the regulation, the subsection 2 says for purposes of this section, uh, a MOCMI is, and then it explains what a MOCMI is, and also based on the explanation from the legislative history. The well, Register. But if the, if the, if this, do we have to go and look at the legislative history to, to because if, if the statute is, in, is not ambiguous, then whatever is in the Federal Register is uh, what the regulation is, it, 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 it doesn't matter, right? Yes, Your Honor. And so I just wanted to make sure that both, both parties seem to agree that this is not ambiguous. Okay. Yes. And, and just, just to finish my line of thought there, what is your answer, uh, Ms. Bell, to Mr. McTonaghan's explanation of the parenthetical in two little i, excluding structural gastrointestinal disease? As I understood his explanation, uh, NAS did some studies that dealt with the functional gastrointestinal disorders, but not the structural and Therefore, they were included here, but you could do a case-by-case -case assessment based on little two I, two little I. Your Honor, uh, in July 2011, uh, the Federal Register amended 3.317 to include all functional GI disorders, replacing irritable bowel syndrome, because uh, there were studies connecting functional GI disorders to Gulf War deployment. And the registry specifically noted that there were, there were insufficient evidence uh, connecting structural GI disorders to the Gulf War deployment. And actually went on to say that uh, to answer a comment, they wanted to include GERD and structural GI disorders to the regulation. And the VA responded by noting that GERD, ulcerated colitis, Crohn disease, are structural or organic diseases that are characterized by abnormalities that can be seen in X-ray, endoscopy, lab results, and other objective signs of injury or diseases. So it's, it distinguished structural GI disorders from functional GI disorders in explaining that GERD could not be included or other structural GI disorders could not be included. In the Federal Register, it talked about that like you said, there was a positive association found between functional gastrointestinal disorders and Gulf War service, and that there was insufficient or inadequate evidence to determine whether there was a relationship between structural gastrointestinal disorders and Gulf War service. So in the regulation, it talks about Federal Register that that rulemaking was limited to clarifying the scope of the functional disorders. But now you're asking us to say that by adding in that positive finding, the positive association to the list of automatic conditions, that VA also explicitly intended to categorically exclude something based on 
the National Academy's finding of insufficient evidence. Is that how you're asking us to interpret what happened with this rulemaking? Yes, Your Honor. In addition to having insufficient evidence to connect structural GI disorders to the Gulf War deployment, it also noted that GERD are different from functional GI disorders because they are structural or organic disorders that are characterized by abnormalities that can be seen. And the goal of Congress when it created 1117 was to compensate diseases that had symptoms that could not be explained and wanted to exclude diseases that had readily diagnosable diseases such as diabetes or MS. And so GERD, you know, GERD can be seen. So, for example, in chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, and functional GI disorders, when a veteran has symptoms, credible symptoms, and they go to a doctor and the doctor performs diagnostic tests, the tests come out negative, normal. But when a veteran has structural GI disorders and they go to a doctor, the test shows abnormalities that are physical. So these symptoms are connected to physical cause, and the medical community can clearly understand the symptoms and the cause of the symptoms. So where the excluding language was added to the regulation is in 2 little i capital B, which, according to your brief, is supposed to set out a list of conditions that do automatically qualify. So why would we expect within that list to find something categorically excluding a condition when it's meant to be a list of what is included? Because the regulation explicitly states that structural GI disorder has been excluded based on the national... Excluded from the automatic presumption or excluded entirely? It's within a list of the automatic conditions. Entirely from 3.317, Your Honor, because it's a disease that can be easily, readily diagnosable and can be easily understood. They have symptoms that can be seen because they are associated with physical cause. So there's another place in the regulation, the double little i, where it explicitly talks about some conditions like diabetes and multiple sclerosis that can never be a qualifying condition under 3.317. Yes. Why would structural disorders have been placed in little i1 as opposed to 2 where the other conditions were being listed that were categorically excluded? Because, Your Honor, the Secretary was given authority by Congress to do research, scientific research, and add diseases or exclude diseases. And when it added the functional GI disorders in 2011, it also noted that according to that research, structural GI disorders are different from functional GI disorders. And I believe that they included it in the parentheses when they included functional, just to make clear that structural GI disorders were not included. But it's a matter of drafting of the regulation. Yes, Your Honor. That language is included in the list of automatic presumptions, not in the more general language later on where it does talk about certain types of conditions that are categorically excluded. Should we not read a difference into the placement of those particular phrases? No, Your Honor, because diabetes and MS were actually included in the joint congressional statement, so VA adopted those, just like the fibromyalgia and 
functional GI disorders were included in the Congressional Joint Statement. So VA adopted that, and as it was given authority by Congress to include other diseases based on scientific evidence, it also clarified that although functional GI disorders are included, it clarified that structural GI disorders are not included based on scientific evidence. Or the absence of scientific evidence. I'm sorry? Or the absence of scientific evidence. Yes, Your Honor, but it also clarified that there's a difference between functional and structural GI disorders, and Congress' intent was to compensate diseases that were not clearly understood, that had symptoms that could not be associated with any physical cause, and in this instance, Your Honor, structural GI disorders are clearly associated with physical cause, because they have structural or organic abnormalities, and that's why the VA included in the 2010 Federal Register that GERD and inflammatory bowel diseases have structural organic, they're structural organic diseases that have structural abnormalities that can be seen in diagnostic tests. So it was never the intention of Congress to compensate for such diseases. It was only intended to compensate for diseases that did not have any physical cause, were not clearly understood by the medical community, but not for readily diagnosable diseases such as GERD or diabetes or MS. How much of, well, let me just dwell on this for one more second. The lack of evidence, the insufficiency of the evidence led to the excluding structural GERD, right? Is it possible that at some point in the future, evidence might be sufficient enough to remove that exclusion? Or are you suggesting that because the structural GERD is of such a character that you can see abnormalities that it would never be included? I believe the Secretary's position is it will never be included because it can be clearly associated to physical cause. So it's not a disease that cannot be understood by the medical community, and that was never the intention of Congress when it created 1117 to compensate diseases that are clearly understood. It was intended to compensate diseases that were not, had symptoms that could not be clearly understood, and also had diagnoses that were poorly defined or descriptive diagnoses such as chronic fatigue syndrome, fibromyalgia, functional GI disorders. Those are based on symptom-based criteria and not on objective evidence. So they're descriptive labels put on symptoms that are not clearly understood. And so structural GI disorders are very different because they're clearly understood by the medical community. If I could just jump in there. In your brief, you said that GERD could not qualify under 3407 in part because it was diagnosed as a result of upper GI series, that there were diagnostic test results supporting that diagnosis. So are you saying GERD, a diagnosis of GERD alone makes you categorically excluded, or is it based on how that diagnosis 
came about, whatever testing that was done? It's good, Your Honor, because it was explicitly listed in the 2011. Regardless of how it's diagnosed. Yes. Yeah, as a structural GI disorder, its very nature is that it has a structural abnormality. So when you go to a doctor and they perform diagnostic tests, they can see what's wrong. They can relate the symptoms to the physical abnormality that they see on the test. Ms. Fell, let me ask you the same question I asked Mr. McTardigan regarding the phrase pathophysiology or etiology. Do you read those disjunctively or conjunctively? Conjunctively, Your Honor. Based on the recent hearing in Stewart that was argued in this court, the Secretary's position is still you need both conclusive etiology and conclusive pathophysiology. But pathophysiology and etiology are different, right? Yes, Your Honor. Etiology is the cause and pathophysiology is simply the disease process. Okay. Thank you. Your Honor, appellants concede that she has GERD. She concedes that all the symptoms she has cited are associated with her GERD. She also concedes that her GERD is a structural GI disorder that has been excluded from 3.317. And her only argument is that even though it has been excluded under subsection 1, the small i, it should be considered under the two small i's. However, as the Secretary has noted, all subsection 2 does is to explain what constitutes a MOOCME for purposes of fulfilling the requirement of subsection 1. Could I ask one other question? Switching gears slightly, I know the Secretary argues that the JMR in this case somehow bars the consideration of anything beyond presumptive connection. And you cite Carter for that purpose. But how can you distinguish this from the JMR in Carter? I mean, it just seems to me that, number one, Carter specifically mentioned that one of its bases for finding that in that particular case the JMR didn't foreclose anything was citation to Fletcher. And this has citation to Fletcher as well. The JMR vacates the board decision with no limit. It doesn't limit the vacature of the decision. And at the end, it says that on remand, Appellant is free to submit additional evidence and arguments regarding his claims. So is the Secretary standing by his position that this JMR limits in a way that Carter didn't? Your Honor, the Secretary wishes to clarify that although he argued the law of the case in his brief, the more appropriate doctrine is issue exhaustion and that the court should find that Appellant has exhausted her opportunity to challenge the adequacy of Dr. Sanchez's opinion as it relates to direct service connection because she had several opportunities during the joint motion for remand and also in her brief before the board to challenge Dr. Sanchez's opinion related to direct service connection but chose not to. Well, why shouldn't we say the argument that you just said to me is waived considering the first time that I've heard this argument is about 40 seconds ago? 
when you said it. I'm sorry, Your Honor, I didn't understand. You didn't raise that argument in the brief. You didn't tell us that this was going to be a different argument before the argument. Why shouldn't we say, regardless of whether that is a good argument or bad argument, the Secretary simply waived the argument? Your Honor, the Secretary raised the argument that appellant had an opportunity to challenge Dr. Sanchez's opinion before the board and also in the JMR, but chose not to. But the JMR remand didn't limit at all any of the arguments, right? No, Your Honor. In fact, the joint motion for remand notified appellant that she had an opportunity to provide additional arguments or evidence. But appellant, in her brief to the board after the joint motion for remand, only challenged Dr. Sanchez's opinion, adequacy of Dr. Sanchez's opinion as it relates to secondary service connection, but did not mention direct service connection regarding that opinion. So this is the first time appellant is challenging Dr. Sanchez's opinion related to direct service connection. So, Your Honor, the board properly relied on Dr. Sanchez's opinion when it re-adjudicated the issue of direct service connection because the joint motion for remand did not challenge Dr. Sanchez's opinion and the appellant's brief to the board did not challenge that opinion either. So the board properly relied on that opinion because there were no additional issues raised regarding that opinion as it related to the direct service connection issue. I was just about to ask about that opinion and Judge Allen beat me to it. But if we could turn the record on page 175, that is Dr. Sanchez's opinion. The appellant argues that the board did not consider whether GERD was aggravated by sinusitis and it relied upon Dr. Sanchez's opinion here, which in the appellant's view does not adequately address aggravation, right? Does paragraphs B and C on 175 adequately address aggravation? Yes, Your Honor. Dr. Sanchez opines that according to medical literature, although GERD can cause sinusitis and asthma, sinusitis and asthma cannot cause or aggravate GERD. So Dr. Sanchez relied on medical literature and also noted that appellant reported that she first had sinusitis, then asthma, then acid reflux, then GERD. So Dr. Sanchez opined that although GERD can cause sinusitis and asthma, in this case he did not do so because she first had sinusitis and asthma before she had GERD. And also she opined that GERD is so common it can coexist with these other two diseases without having a common etiology. And also she also opined that when appellant had surgery, her GERD surgery, her GERD symptoms improved, but her symptoms for sinusitis and asthma did not improve, which means that they did not have common etiology. Thank you. 
You may conclude, counsel. Your Honor, the Secretary respectfully asks the court to affirm the board's March 2016 decision because it's not clearly erroneous. Thank you. Your Honors, the language of 3.317 is plain, and it tracks the statute. The Secretary was unable to exclude GERD from the regulation because he was not given the power to do that by 1117. The Secretary was given the power to add disabilities by name, so they were entitled to the automatic presumption of service connection with no further factual or evidentiary development necessary. He was also given the power to afford the presumptions to medically unexplained chronic multi-symptom illnesses without conclusive pathophysiology or etiology with a cluster of signs and symptoms. So if we buy the argument that the Secretary wasn't given the authority by Congress to exclude categorically things, right, but yet we read 3.317 as categorically excluding structural gastrointestinal diseases, what do we do? Do you follow? I do. Well, I think then this Court may rely on subsection 2i as we're suggesting the regulation should be understood in that to get around, that's why the exclusion. No, follow my question. Assume that we, you're saying that Congress does not have the authority under 1117 and 1118 to categorically exclude GERD, right? Is that right? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. So we take that as a given. Now assume that we read 3.317 to categorically exclude GERD. In other words, that phrase that said excluding structural gastrointestinal diseases. Assume that we read that and we say that is absolutely clear that that is what Congress did, that that's what the agency did. So if we accept your argument that Congress didn't give the agency the ability to do that, but yet the regulation does in fact do that, what remedy do you want the Court to do? Well, then I believe we would have a Chevron problem, Your Honor. And I would believe that this Court would have to ask the Secretary to clarify the regulation in some way that makes it so GERD is not categorically excluded. But I don't think the Court needs to get there because I think that the Court may rely on subsection 2ii as an independent basis for finding a disability to be a MUCMI. And so I actually, looking at the Federal Register and looking at the statute, our position is that the parentheses have a very particular meaning 
because of 1117B's requirement and 1118's requirement that there is a scientific study necessary to add disabilities automatically by name. And so I don't think the court needs to reach that question, Your Honor. I think the appropriate remedy here is for the court to provide the correct interpretation, which I believe our position is the correct interpretation, and remand for the board to adjudicate this case using that interpretation. Because the board never got to the question of the disjunctive, whether there's an inconclusive pathophysiology or etiology. Because the board hit a wall, a wall that it thought existed, which is that GERD could never be a MUCMI. But in fact, the board is wrong. And if this court does find that the regulation is ambiguous, we would submit that it's not a veteran-friendly interpretation of this regulation because there is another way to interpret this regulation. It's unnecessarily restrictive the way the Secretary is interpreting it, interpreting the plain language. And this court may rely on Trafter to find a more veteran-friendly interpretation of the regulation to have the weight in the force and effect of law. So let me just follow up with that. Mr. McConaughey, if we accept your argument that Congress did not give the Secretary authority to remove structural GERD, but the regulation does, which is inconsistent with the statute, then would another option be to declare that section of the statute inconsistent? I mean, that section of the regulation inconsistent with the statute? May I have a moment, Your Honor? Sure. Thank you, Your Honor. We would say yes, Your Honor. The court would have the authority to do that. And I wanted to touch on the discussion of Carter briefly. We agree with you, Judge Allen, that there is no Carter problem in this particular case. The JMR vacated the entirety of the board's decision. It did not affirm any parts of it. There is the Kucherowski language in that decision. But even more than that, the board went there. The board discussed the direct and the secondary service connection arguments. And, in fact, the 90-day letter that the veterans representative submitted challenged the adequacy of that examination. And so we believe that this court does have the ability to review the soundness of the board's denial of direct and secondary service connection. What, if anything, do we do with the point I discussed with counsel for the secretary, which I stole from Judge Meredith, that the very nature of the JMR could be seen as being inconsistent with the position now being taken that GERD is universally off the table? Well, I think that can go to the fact that the secretary's interpretation shouldn't be afforded deference because inconsistent positions on this issue shows that it's not the secretary's considered judgment that he is arguing today. So on that point, though, you know, I don't – the secretary hasn't actually used those words here, deference. I mean, it didn't cite our, it didn't cite Seminole Rock. But is there anything to be done with the position taken by the secretary earlier in this same case and embodied in a court order that is now – that it seems to me could be entirely inconsistent with the position now? 
And the reason I'm asking you this question is, you know, that, that might serve a smaller interest without a larger interest. <laughs> in, in other words, if we were to say the Secretary is simply bound in this, this, um, this particular case by that position, we wouldn't necessarily reach the meaning of 3.317. That is true, Your Honor. Um, but I, I, I think that, uh, of course, the court could, could decide in this particular case the Secretary is bound by the prior JMR. Um, but I think that I don't, so the Secretary didn't cite our in, in, in the brief, but I do think that we have been talking about the tenets of our throughout this entire conversation that we're having today. The, whether the Secretary's plain, uh, whether the statute is ambiguous, which plain meeting um, is more appropriate given the language of the statute and the regulation. Um, so I think that although the court could do that, I think the court should take that next step. Um, and we ask this court to, to announce that the plain meaning um, of, the, of the regulation is that subsection 2i and subsection 2ii are just two separate ways to satisfy the presumption. Get you to respond to the Secretary's issue exhaustion argument. Um, when did the appellant first challenge the 2014 exam? And was it on only secondary, or was it on both direct and secondary when the appellant raised it below? Um, in the 90-day letter, the, the appellant challenged the adequacy of the 2014 examination. Um, the specific argument made was, was only with respect to secondary service connection. However, Your Honor, I think the, because of the Board's decision, I think, I think it can be seen as the Board understanding that challenge to be on both bases, um, both bases, because the Board adjudicated the direct service connection element of this case. And the reasons and bases are, are slightly different than those they provided in the prior board decision. And so I think by um, bringing up the issue and adjudicating the issue, the board understood that 90-day letter to be challenging um, all aspects of the 2014 examination. And then also, um, in representing Ms. Atencio, you know, we wanted to also challenge the reasons and bases the board gave on the direct service connection and the underlying medical examination they used to support it. If there are no further questions, Your Honors, we ask that this court uh, remand this case to the board and provide the board with the correct interpretation of the regulation, which is that structural gastrointestinal disabilities in GERD are not categorically excluded for the presumption as a MUCME on a case-by-case -case basis with medical evidence supporting. Thank you, Your Honors. Thank you. Thank you all for your input. The case is submitted for consideration. The court will now come down and greet counsel. All right. Where does Mary sit?